Our Lord and God, we pray that today, as we consider these words, that you would give us the eyes of faith to see beyond our present experience and within even our present experience the weight of your glory. Show it to us in Jesus Christ, and we ask in his name. Amen. Paul, of course, the writer of Corinthians. Paul, like Jesus, like Moses, Paul had his detractors, people who didn't like what he was saying. They asserted that his message that he was preaching couldn't really be true because neither Paul himself nor the contents of his message, much of which was about the suffering and the death of the Messiah, and then the calling of that Messiah to take up our own cross and follow in a path that was similar to his, nor the reception that Paul had had amongst the people. None of that about him, his message, or his reception were glorious, and therefore it couldn't be true. He's unimpressive, and he is apparently inglorious. And so Paul is kind of backed into a corner in 2 Corinthians, and he has to talk about glory so that he can explain to people why the world looks a certain way right now and why his message really is the truth about the glory of God. And real quickly, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. If not, just listen for a moment. Let me just give you the trajectory of glory that goes from 2 Corinthians 3 through to our point here in 2 Corinthians 4. So 2 Corinthians 3 started off where we've already referenced, namely talking about the Old Covenant and the fact that the Old Covenant was, in fact, a glorious covenant. That said, it was also a temporary covenant and a fading covenant. It has been superseded by the glory of the new covenant, which is shown to us in the face of Jesus Christ, and which is, as Paul phrases it, imperishing and permanent. It will never fade away. He describes us in verse 18 of chapter 3, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We've got an unveiled face now. There was a veil that existed before. Now with an unveiled face, we are beholding the glory of God. And we are actually in process right now, even though it may not look like this to the world, being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Chapter 4, verse 4. Paul talking about those who disagree. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The effect of Satan on the world has been to put the veil, to put the veil over the eyes of those who are unbelievers so that they do not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not have that same veil because of the mercy of God. Therefore, verse 6, God said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Some are veiled and some are unveiled, and those who are unveiled have the ability in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves facing to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Presently, we have a foretaste of the glory to come, a down payment of glory, a down payment of joy that is ours, and yet surpassing greater imperishable glory will be our inheritance, even if now we experience every manner of suffering and wasting away, as Paul describes it. Now, the remainder of this sermon is going to be structured according to a series of a couple of questions, which I will make clear as we go along the way. And the first natural question is this, what is this glory? What are we talking about? Well, we have innumerable illustrations in life and in the Bible of what glory is. So when your team wins, when you finish the recital, when you finish the play, you receive your glory. You receive the accolades or the trophies, the applause, the compliments, the flowers, the rings, whatever comes with having said to you, you've done a good job. Receive the glory that is your due. We read as our call to worship this morning, Psalm 29. And Psalm 29 says that everything in the temple everything in the temple, whether that temple be the heavenly temple of God, the earthly temple, or the earthly tabernacle, everything in the temple cries out glory. God is intrinsically glorious, and it is good, and it is right, and it is appropriate that all of His creation should acknowledge His glory. For inseparable from the concept of glory, and hear this carefully, inseparable from the concept of glory is the acknowledgement thereof and enjoyment therein. People celebrate glory and they enjoy the celebration of glory. There are all sorts of synonyms that we might use uh, from the Scriptures to describe that which is glorious or, or glory. We could talk about majesty, splendor, beauty. We could talk about weightiness, and that gets at the, the literalness of the Hebrew word, that glory is something weighty, something of substance. But today, I would like to comprehend glory under two headings, which are two headings that are used by Lewis in his sermon slash uh, now book. But more importantly than the fact that they were used by Lewis is the fact that they are eminently biblical in terms of describing for us what glory is, having a, a way to get a handle on what glory is. And those two things are that when we think about glory, glory is associated with fame and luminosity, with renown and light. If you want to think about this in an earthly kind of way, glory would be associated 
with having your name on the marquee in lights. If you want to think about it in a more biblical way, perhaps the easiest handle for us, the easiest thing for us to imagine is to think for a moment of the transfiguration. So at the transfiguration, we have the fame and renown of Jesus Christ expressed by God the Father. So the voice comes down at the transfiguration and says, this is my son, my only son, the one with whom I am well pleased or the one whom I love. Listen to him. There's an acknowledgement. There's, a, there's a, 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 an identification of this one as glorious by God the Father himself. And of course, when we read of the transfiguration, what we recognize is that description that Jesus' face shone like the sun and that his garments were white like light. So a combination of these two ideas of fame and luminosity. And of course, that transfiguration is just a foretaste. It is a glimpse of what is to come in that day when at the name of Jesus, the, the renown and the fame, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So there is a full creation acknowledgement of the glory of that person and that name in particular. And if we look at the book of Revelation, we will see that as we acknowledge the glory of the Lord, Revelation 1.16, that in fact his face is as one shining like the sun. Or let me read for us from Revelation chapter 21, this description of the new Jerusalem. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory unto it. The Lord and the Lamb are the light of the new city, and it's the light that leads the nations, and the nations, the kings, bring glory unto that city and unto the Lamb and the Lord. Glory is held out to us. It's held out to us, one, that we should be part of this company that is giving glory to God. So if you will, led by the kings of the earth into the position of those who are giving glory. And glory is held out to us in a way that is slightly different than that, namely that we will be partakers in some way of that glory. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. But here's the second question. Why would glory be held out to us? Why would God dangle before our eyes, spiritually speaking, fame and luminosity? Is that not inherently dangerous? A after all, you and I share the all-too-human propensity to shine the light where it ought not be shown. We will shine light on golden calves, on golden jewelry, on gold itself, and, and perhaps more dangerously, well, we'll shine the light on anything, 
But perhaps more dangerously, we will shine the light on ourselves or we'll, we'll shine it on other creatures. We have a propensity to exchange the truth of God for a lie, to worship and glorify and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Why hold out glory to such a creature as a prize? After all, Shouldn't we, as God's children, do the right thing because it is the right thing without regard for reward or for personal glory? Shouldn't we cultivate or practice a personal indifference to gain for the glory of God. Wouldn't that be more glorifying to God if we just did it that way? Well, the screaming biblical answer to that question is no. We are forbidden, forbidden to be disinterested in our own happiness. If we are called to self-denial, we are called to self-denial because we are called unto something that is greater. Self-denial as a present manifestation of something to which I say no for the sake of a greater gain. Paul's entire argument about how we deal with the afflictions the groaning, the decay, the burdens, the wasting away, and those are all his words that he uses throughout this section of this world, is by laying them up against the eternal weight of glory, which is, as he phrases it in English, beyond all comparison. What afflicts us is light compared to that which awaits us which is heavy. Paul here is using hyperbole. That's a play on words because Paul is playing with words. A weight of glory beyond all comparison. That phrase, if you want to know it literally in the Greek, beyond all comparison, is with hyperbole unto hyperbole. Beyond beyondness, beyond more than I can be beyond, is the weight of glory. Now, present experience, if you're using your Bibles, you can turn with me. If not, just listen. Present experience is hard. First Corinthians, I mean, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, so just a few, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, just a few before this says this, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So utterly burdened. The word for burden there is the exact same word for the weight of glory. Okay, they're, 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 Paul's using, the, he's playing on words here. We were utterly burdened 
beyond our strength, hyperbole, our strength. That's what it feels like at the present. It feels like we're right there. We're ready to despair even of life. We are so burdened and weighed down. But for Paul, future reality tips the scales. That which seemed heavy, the afflictions experienced in Asia, that which seemed beyond heavy, the afflictions that were experienced in Asia unto death, now seems light because something so much heavier is in front of me for consideration, namely the weight of glory. Paul does not say to himself, does not think to himself, well, I better not tell them about the inheritance of glory, because if I tell them about the inheritance of glory, these Corinthians who are all about glory on earth, if I tell them about that, it might go to their heads. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't think, oh, they'll get lazy if I tell them they've got an inheritance of glory. They'll get spoiled. They won't do anything. I'll hold off from telling them. Instead, he's willing to risk it because he knows that the Corinthians are, in fact, secured by the indwelling spirit of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. And therefore, he's going to tell them boldly all that is theirs in Christ Jesus as much as he is able to, at least, so that Paul explains to them why they are undergoing these afflictions. And to understand why they are undergoing these afflictions, it must be compared to the glory that awaits for them. This is a little bit of a quick summary of Pauline theology on this. Why are you undergoing all of these afflictions? Number one, because afflictions produce character, and character produces endurance, and endurance produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. In secular language, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But Paul says these afflictions are going to have that work in you. Beyond that, secondly, you are filling up in these afflictions or you're experiencing the birth pangs of the judgment of the Messiah. The judgment will come. And the first stages of it have started in this world and they have started against us, the people of God. And so we are enduring part of the beginnings of the judgment of the Messiah. And point number three, and most importantly for Paul, is that in experiencing these sufferings, we are in fact engaged in and in union with Jesus Christ in experiencing His same sufferings. And in union with Him, the result of this suffering is that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, which is to say more and more into his image. The burdens are pressing down on us, and when the press lifts up, what you reveal is a cross-shaped life. So Paul wants us to know about glory. He wants us to hope for glory because it makes a difference now. 
So what exactly is held out to us? What exactly, not just glory in general, but what is secured by Jesus for us? Of what does this glory consist? Well, in a very real sense, as we read in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism just a few minutes ago that are echoing 1 Corinthians, the fact of the matter is the glory that has been secured for us is beyond description. It is indescribable. It is beyond what eye has seen, what ear has heard, or of what the heart of man can conceive. And yet, nevertheless, within that, because of the work of the Spirit of God, God has revealed to us some of what that glory is going to be like. And that said, of course, I cannot say it all in one sermon. It is wonderfully inexhaustible to talk about the promises that are held out in Scripture for the life of glory. But a few. We will have resurrected, changed, glorious, spiritual, physical bodies. They will be imperishable. They will be without decay. There will be no sickness. There will be no death. We will be perfected in holiness. There will be sins that are removed from us. We will be given some kind of ruling, some kind of judging position, and we will be happy. What does it take to make a Puritan giddy? talk of glory. You read the Puritans, and everybody, you know, let's, let's, for a moment, let's allow the characterization to stand. It could be shattered, but we'll just let it stand for a moment. But you get them talking or writing about glory, and the phrases flow out. Phrases like the everlasting happiness of the saints, complete happiness, unspeakable joy, that which will sweeten the happiness of believers in the full enjoyment of God in heaven is the eternity thereof. Thomas Boston, this is the happy end of all the labors of the saints. Their toils and sorrows issue in a joyful rest. The Westminster Larger Catechism, more known for detail and precision than for warmth, says we will behold the face of God in light and glory, freed from all sin and misery, filled with inconceivable joys, made perfectly holy and happy both in body and soul. And the shorter catechism, we will be made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. But what of fame and what of luminosity? Lewis writes of these two, as for the first, since to be famous means to be better known than other people, The desire for fame appears to me as a competitive passion and therefore of hell rather than of heaven. As for the second, luminosity, who wishes to become some kind of a living electric light bulb? But fame, 
in glory is not so much from people. Rather, fame, when we are talking about our lives in glory, is that we should be known by God, lauded by God, who says, in my son, I know you. You are my beloved. You are my treasured possession. I know you by name. Well done. And in our perfected state, there won't be any boastful reaction from us at that point in time. I need to tell you a silly story this morning. I did not prep either my son or my wife for this silly story. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I didn't this morning. This is a silly story because only as a child can you understand the wonders of glory. Can we get a little bit of a hold of it? So, so Lauren, Nate and I come down you know, in the morning, gotten dressed for the day, and Lauren inevitably says to us, you look really cute. And so we look at each other and we go, hey, we look really cute. Now, I'm old enough. Nate's not old enough. But I'm old enough to understand full well that my days of being cute, or at least really cute, objectively were long ago. That those days don't exist anymore. But you know what I dare to believe? I dare to believe, and if it's not true, don't tell me. I dare to believe that my beloved thinks I'm really cute. And there is a childlike delight in being loved by your beloved. Now we're standing before the Almighty. We're not talking about cuteness. But when the Almighty says, I delight over you, I rejoice in joy over you, the boastfulness or the pride doesn't even make any sense. What do I have that hasn't been given to me by you? What breath did I take that wasn't a gift from you? And so when the Almighty delights in the creature, the creature turns in a perfected, glorified state and turns it right back. When the Almighty distributes a crown to our head, a crown to our head, we cast it at his feet and say, this is yours. This is not our crown. This is the crown of Jesus Christ who has secured it for us. In perfection, we do not boast, but it is our delight to be prized and to do the will of our sovereign and to give praise to him forever. That's fame. Of luminosity. We read this in Scripture. We read that not only does Jesus' face shine like the sun, but Matthew 13, 43, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining, as the sun. Does that make us light bulbs? No. What it means is this, that we are not merely observers. We are not merely acknowledgers of that which is glorious, namely the Lord. But it's more than that. In this world, you and I so often feel disconnected, 
detached from the world and from others. We feel like we are people who are watching fireworks or, or watching a parade go by us, visiting a beautiful place. We want to be part of something. We want to be connected to something. And yet we find this disconnect. And so what we do is we connect our phone to a pole and we hang it out and we take a picture of ourselves in the background with something else and we send it to people because we think this will make me famous, this will make me connected. It'll make me part of something. I'm in lights. But luminosity means that in glory, we become partakers of and participants in that glory. Jesus said to his Father, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they might be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. Every once in a while in life, we get a taste of what it is like to be connected, to be a part of something. If you are a musician, it might be when you're playing or listening to a beautiful piece of music. It might be in a time of corporate or private worship that we're caught up, as it will, into our union with Christ, into the glory of God, if even just for a moment. As an artist, you might experience the same thing as you look at the painting or as you do the painting itself. I grew up and spent a lot of time around the water, and so for me, catching a wave, body surfing, and the water rushing by me is a moment where I feel at one, connected to something, to the scene that I'm actually in, to dive in the clear blue waters of the Aegean Sea, to snorkel at Lake Malawi and see the fish following is a, is a moment for me to feel connected. In Christ, in glory, we will be utterly and completely connected and attached and in the eternal moment. Sin has disconnected us from the world, from one another, and from God. And the result is that you and I often feel like voyeurs, spying on others but not apart, dwarves in an elvish kingdom, in Christ and in glory, we will belong. That's the weight of glory. Paul holds it out there. He says, you better think about that. You better hope for that and wait for that to deal with afflictions now. It is a gift from Jesus Christ through his spirit to those who trust in him. To those who do not trust in him, on that day he will say this, get away from me.
into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, for I never knew you. You weren't famous to me, and so come to the name that is above every name. May our hunger increase. May our hope be strengthened. Don't lose heart. May our afflictions, which are real and heavy, seem lighter as we wait for the weight of glory. Amen.